The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian sitting areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when their travels bring them to Washington. For more information, visit www.tabardinn.com. Welcome to Reject Plants on the Heritage Radio Network on the internet, broadcasting from two shipping containers outside of Roberta's Pizza at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Um, right now, I'm sniffing a clementine. <laughs> Winter time. Pretending that I'm in California. And today's going to have a little bit of a California flavor. Um, I'm Carmen DeVito. And I'm Alice Marcus Krieg. We are the garden designers and builders of Groundworks, Inc., we um, build gardens all over New York City and the surrounding area, and this show aims to bring the culture to horticulture. And today we have a very special guest on our show who um, we're really pleased to have on. Her name is Sharon Lovejoy, and she is going to be um, joining us via telephone from her home in California to share about her work as a gardener, as a writer, and an artist. Um, we've been following Sharon's career for some time. Um, but it really touched home for me when I had my son, Max. And as a gardener, of course, I wanted to share my love of gardening and the outdoors with him. And there are innumerable statistics about how important it is to introduce kids to the natural world. And there's just as many sources of information on how to do it. Um, but what I think is really special about Sharon's approach for me is her combination of a sense of wonder, and you really get that from her books, a sense of wonder about the natural world and her broad vision of what that comprises. It doesn't just consist of gardening, how-to, or cooking, or recipes. It includes art and science, and she was doing it long before Michelle Obama and Jamie Oliver stuck a spade in the ground. <laughs> and her <laughs> artwork is super sweet. So yeah. welcome, Sharon. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, Sharon. <laughs> wow, to be uttered with Michelle Obama and Jamie Oliver. <laughs> well, you know, those are the two new garden superstars. So. I know. Just I because know. they, you know, they think it's, uh, they just invented the idea of uh, gardening with children. But it, it's been, you know it's, what? <laughs> all, I, personally, I think all gardeners are superstars, especially if they take the time to share their knowledge and their love and their passion with youngsters who are our next hope. You know, we have to give that gift to them or we're in trouble. <laughs> exactly. And and actually, uh, I agree with you. Um, I'd like to share with our audience a little bit about your history, Sharon, um, because okay. you your love of gardening sort of came from your experience as a child. Um, from what I had read, for the first seven years of your life, you were introduced to the wonder of nature by your Quaker grandmother, Abigail Lovejoy. Isn't that right? That's absolutely right. And we may not have been able to dance or do some other things, but we sure could garden. <laughs> and she was a marvelous gardener. And I have to say that I honestly didn't realize the gift she gave me till I was a teenager. And I was with a group of friends, and we were chewing on sweet fennel, which really carpets a lot of the hillsides in Southern California. Uh-huh. And somebody reached for some uh, hemlock and started to put it in their mouth. And I said, stop. 
And if you've ever looked at poison hemlock, conium maculatum, uh, which was Socrates' last drink, yeah. Um, if you look at it, it looks like it has blood dots on uh, on its stem. And I said, stop, that's poison. And they said, how do you know? And I said, my grandma told me, it. look for the blood dots, you never eat that. And, I, and it just started coming back to me. So I know that we lose our children sometimes as they get up and their peer pressure is important. But this kind of knowledge that you give them when they're really young, it flows back to them and enriches their lives in so many ways. Uh, agreed. Um, well, after your experience, your sort of practical experience uh, with your grandmother, you also um, studied art, isn't that right, at San Diego State? I did, <laughs> and I remember my mom saying, how are you going to earn a living doing <laughs> art? <laughs> and I've earned a living for over 20, 20 some years doing art, and probably many of my college professors said the same things. They said, you, you draw too small, you're, too, you're doing too much realistic stuff, but... What I learned is that you follow your heart, you go for the joy factor, and when you do and you, you work hard at it, I mean, a lot of it is about tenacity, it can pay off, and it has. I'm so lucky. I have um, Workman Publishing in New York City, and I'm very close to everybody there uh, involved in the creation of my books, and they're 100% for me, and they've let me deviate from the norm a little bit and really express myself, and I'm I'm really thankful because, to me, communicating a passion and a love and knowledge is the whole thing, whether it's my art, whether it, whatever it is. If you really sit down and look, I, I try to share those little gems and little bits of trivia that children and adults love. Well, I uh, also read that you also had a garden and herb shop um, I did, in yeah. Cambria, California. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, Cambria is um, right by Hearst Castle, and by actual count, we had over 100,000 visitors a year to our little garden, which was a quarter acre. And um, it was in a, a property that my husband and I owned that had a barn and a little 1880s cottage on it. We bought it from Angela Lansbury, the movie star. Oh. She, she owned that property. And, it, and her brother-in-law had had an antique shop there, and it was full of junk. And when he passed away, it was going to be sold, and I wrote Angie a letter and thought I'd never hear from her, told her, sent her a uh, portfolio of my work and said I wanted to teach classes and, you know, it, all this stuff. And one day her business manager called and he drove the 230 miles up to Cambria, spent the day with me, at the end of the day shook our hands and said, Angie would love to sell you this property. And then when she had her brother-in-law's funeral ceremony, it was held in our newly created gardens. And she looked around and she got tears in her eyes and she said, I feel as though I'm in Britain. I feel as though this garden's been here 100 years. But really, it had only been there less than a year. It was a, it was a miracle garden. Well, that was all your uh, experience coming to, to fruition. It was. It, and, and also, I had the slave labor of my sons and my <laughs> husband and Labor's all my good. friends. Yeah. No, and, but my sons were just, they fought it every step of the way. And then... After the garden was in, I'd hear them out there, and they'd say, well, I did this. I built this bed. Right. It was all raised. <laughs> you know, and I, I planted this. This lemon verbena is my baby, and I, I just That's thought, so Boy. interesting. It's really gratifying to hear that because my son <laughs> is 11, and he resists, you know. And then, um, you know, sometimes when I'm not around or he doesn't think that I'm listening, he'll say, he'll have his friends over, and he'll say, yeah, that's, that's my mom's herb garden, and he's able to identify every <laughs> single plant. And he'll say, you know, try the fennel, and it, you can just eat that. And, oh, that's you know, but you know he won't he won't admit it to me you know he'll say well of course I'm, not. I'm not interested and in that is that your max 
your that, 11-year-old? That's my max. I only have oh, one. Oh, boy. <laughs> so. Well, that's, see, you've given him a gift already, and, and he won't, you know, he'll carry that forever, and that's, that's so important. I know moms and dads work full-time, and some people work way more full, than full-time and may work two jobs. So um, if they can just take some time on a weekend or when they have a little bit of time, even to grow something in a coffee can or, a, or you know, a, a, a plastic bag. I mean, I don't care what you grow it in, and that's why I, in Root Shoots Buckets and Boots I went out of my way to show that you can grow things in tiny containers, in big, funny containers, in boxes, in, in all sorts of things, and really transfer to children that sense of wonder and the amazing feeling of being a parent to something. I've heard kids yell, I'm a mother to a carrot. <laughs> oh, I had never thought about it that way. That's an interesting, uh, that's a very um, a childlike and sweet way of thinking about it, which, which leads me to, to ask you this question. Um, in, in all your books, and they have you know this certain sensibility about them, you sort of combine the gardening, cooking, nature study, and science, and you create what I see as kind of a quieter sort of slower paced and more magical world than the real world that we live in how do you, how do you personally stay inspired in this age, in this sort of like high speed you know internet internet age, age with constant <laughs> electronic interruptions how do you continue to find that wonder well i, I don't mean to, puns are the lowest form of humor but gardens keep me grounded they really do <laughs> mm-hmm. as do my as do all the children in my life but every day of my life even in the rain, even in a windstorm, I go out and get in touch with what's going on. And when my family's had new children and they've just been a few days old, I'll take them out and go to my scented pelargoniums and run their little pink fingers over a peppermint pelargonium or, you know, apple or nutmeg and just talk to them and getting them in touch keeps me in touch. It reinforces that I know when I wrote Sunflower Houses, uh, my son was quite young, and, and I said that he, he reinfected me with childhood. He reawakened me. He gave me new eyes on the magic of childhood and how to view the earth. I do slow down. I get a lot of emails every day from readers, dozens and dozens and dozens, and questions. But that early morning time when I get back and get on my knees out in the garden and pull out scarlet pimpernel that's insinuated its way into my wildflower patch or you know, work on my lettuces, it, it really grounds me, and I think it could help everyone if they even grow things indoors to be in touch with something. I, I'm sure you do this, too. I talk to my plants every day. A, a really sad statement that, that Carmen and I hear a lot from a lot of our clients is, oh, I have a black thumb. I can't do this at all. Oh, I'm tired of that. Uh, it's so boring to me because I think it's a cop out have you even tried you know like come on (laughs) you can like you're saying get that coffee can get some soil and try something you know try that bean try that sunflower you know it's really easy you know my granddaughter was staying with me and um, it was a rainy day and I was making bean soup and I said um, and I wrote about this in toad cottages and shooting stars I said um Sarah, do you want to cook them all or do you want to rescue some? And she said, rescue. So we poured them into a bowl of water. Some of them floated. We knew those were dead. Mm-hmm. The ones that sank, we planted into a big terracotta pot of soil. And within the next two weeks, it was an amazing thing to see all those beans come up. She felt so proud and so connected to the garden. 
And, you know, she didn't know that she could grow something, and no one knows until they try. And I always remember this Russell Page quote that was, um, that a green thumb is the product of a verdant heart. And, uh, you know, I feel sorry for people who say they have a black thumb because they're missing out on one of the biggest joys of life. Yeah, and so many people ha- just have no idea where their food even comes from these days, and they, and they won't even try it, you know? No, like no. you're saying, you know, that was bean soup, but it turned into this whole a analogous, yeah, just That's right. an amazing situation that, you know, where learning actually occurred, and it wasn't just bean soup on a cold day. No, it wasn't, and... There's so much life force wrapped up in the starts of plants and, you know, cuttings. I mean, if you could see all the rosemaries I have growing in this little garden that were side uh, garnishes on plates, I can't stand to throw them away. I, I always root them. I've got about seven different varieties of rosemary in the yard, and they all almost ended their lives on the side of a plate. I guess what I want to say is people need to understand that spark of life is in everything, and um, when I did my windowsill garden projects, and I have some going right now, too, for instance, just getting a kohlrabi at the market and putting it at the top of a, a vase and letting it sprout and letting it get leaves and bloom, it's such an amazing feeling, even when you're a grown-up. Yeah. I mean, even God that... forbid I should be a grown-up. <laughs> <laughs> even even that, that simple avocado, you know? Yes. Toothpicks yes. in an avocado is like pure joy on the windowsill. Yeah, I have a great book. Um, Alice and I worked at the Horticultural Society of New York for years, and one of our great friends was the librarian there, Catherine Powis, and we would get, when she was cleaning house, she would get rid of, she would get rid of her gardening (laughs) books. It was basically the foundation of our library. Yeah, (laughs) she would give them, you know, she'd sell them them. to (laughs) us for, you know, a pittance. It was just really, so I have a great collection of gardening books, and one of my favorites is called, and it's a classic, Classic from the 70s. It would never get published today. It's called the After Dinner, um, uh, the After Dinner Gardening Book, and it's about all the pits and stuff left on your plate yeah. after Wonderful. dinner that you can't grow. <laughs> and it's well, so quintessential. Yeah, <laughs> you should you should get wonderful. it. It would it would definitely. Um, there were some wonderful things in there about all the you know they were having their wonderful dinner parties, and then don't throw out your pits. You can you can plant them. <laughs> And I know there was another group in New York City who um, got together once a month, and I cannot remember the name of them, but they all grew things, for instance, ginger from ginger cuttings, and that was very inspirational to me to think of all these people in these New York City apartments growing ginger. It must have been one of the plant societies. Yes, I bet it was. Yeah, and it was a a funny little one, and I can't remember it. Maybe some of your your listeners will, you know, write to you, but... I wrote some notes to them, and just I just loved. And they had reviewed my book, Trial and Error, so I got a Google alert, and that's how I found out about them. Uh-huh. And it was wonderful. Uh, in fact, I need to go back and find them again because so much knowledge there. Yeah. People who grew everything in their apartments. Yeah. They definitely had green thumbs and verdant hearts. <laughs> well, we have to take a break right now. Um, just stay on the line. We'll be back with I'll you in that. two seconds. You're listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. Oh, firefly, I watch you as you go now You go flying by, tell me how you glow now Every evening there's a show, stars above and down below 
Crazy lights are everywhere You bring the magic of summer to the air Firefly Lighting up the breeze now Hi, welcome back. We have Sharon Lovejoy on with us. You're listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. Um, we were just flipping through some of your books and one thing that I love be, being an art person is I love these drawings that, that you do. They're very delicate. And I especially like the individual plant portraits in your sunflower houses. What inspired your style? And I'm, I'm assuming they're all done by hand. They are. Um, you know, I started writing before computers did um, artwork. Mm-hmm. And I keep a journal. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if, if you looked at my book, Trial and Error, many of the drawings in Trial and Error came out of my daily journal. Yeah, that's what I it looks like. Life. Yeah. Right. And um, um, many of the drawings in Toad Cottages and Shooting Stars came out of my journal. I do quick, simple sketches with a pencil. I go back to my studio and I use a Micron 005 pen and I use washes of watercolor and gouache and I use watercolor pencils and just plain colored pencils mm-hmm. and I love my studio and I have a children's studio set up there too for my grandchildren and they have their own workstations although they're playstations with rolls of paper and every kind of tool you could imagine for making art you and, sound like um, the perfect grandmother <laughs> I know can you adopt me? can I come to hang out with you <laughs> I wish I wish you could well did you have you had a chance to see our little garden here in country gardens magazine no not it, yet oh it's in I had gotten a message from you and it says something about country living but it's in the better Gar- homes and gardens country gardens magazine and okay it's a good example of what a small, and it is a small lot, a 9,000-square-foot city lot. We've managed to cram in 60 trees, 60 fruit trees. Wow. Actually, we, have a, we, have 64, we have 64 trees, and um, many of them are dwarf species and giant terracotta pot. Uh-huh. We grow all sorts of foods here, all kinds of strawberries, and, and um, you know, I just... I want people to realize how great it is to grow their own food. I want people to realize that they can do it in a small area. And in, also in that article on Country Gardens, it shows some of my journal pages. And, and I'm out working in the garden one day when my girlfriend, Lynn, took a picture. So that there's that, too. So you can see my setup and the watercolors and, and everything. That's interesting. It looked, from the photos that I saw, it looked a lot larger. No, it's not. It, Interesting. My other, no, my other garden in, in, uh, up in Cambria where we had our uh, community gardens that we tended, I had a, a, almost a one-acre garden and then a quarter acre. But what people have to realize is that you can get so many plants into a small space. Yeah. And I'm, I can make testimony to that. No, you really can. I, uh, I, I completely um, am in support of that. It's amazing what a small space can give you. Well, we usually yes, that's true. Well, we work in urban environment, and we have most of the gardens that we make are you know under six or seven hundred square feet. And, yeah, you know, and people have high expectations of that square footage, and we we're able to make in real environments for them to enjoy at many different that's levels. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So well, I'd love to see some of yours next time I'm in New York City. I'll be turning in my new manuscript. Um, in June, and maybe we can somehow visit some of your gardens. Oh, please, please. We would love to give you the tour. Yeah. I'd love that. I'm that serious. Be, that would be really great. So we, um, we noticed that you also spend part of the time 
um, each year in Maine and then in Southern California where where you are calling in from now. Tell me a right. little bit about Maine, my favorite well, place. Oh, it's my favorite place, too. I fell in love with it when I was a child, and I read the work of Sarah Orne Jewett, country doctor, uh-huh. country of the pointed fur. And so there I was, a landlocked California girl, in love with this island-dotted magical place. So when I was quite young, I went there, fell in love with it, and started going every summer. When I met my husband, I said, how do you feel about Maine? And he said, I don't know, and that was the test. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we bought our place 16 years ago. Uh, at Christmas Cove, which is mid-coast Maine, mm-hmm. and it's right on the water. It was part of the Miles Fresh Air Camp. We got the old, um, it was the old bunkhouse or dormitory, and we fixed it up for a Country Living article. I mean, we fixed it up for ourselves, but it was featured in Country Living. And it is colorful. We are in touch with the dolphins and the whales and the, you know, the alewives running and the elvers, and we... It, we feel like when we're in Maine that we are we're the luckiest people in the world. Yeah, Maine has that that <laughs> effect, and the blueberry pie. <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, we have a blueberry patch. It's small. We've kept our yard. We feel it's only half an acre, but we feel that it's the most perfect garden in the world because it's blueberries and bayberries and wild lilies and oh, pink lady uh, lady slippers. Mm-hmm. And then what we do to grow lettuces, and, and of course I always have to have sunflowers and heavenly blue morning glories, we have lots of containers, mm-hmm. and we have window boxes, and we just cram them full of all kinds of good things. So you have gardens on two opposite, uh, the opposite ends of the, <laughs> of the continent, very, very different gardens, as you describe. I know, but it's so different because I spend a lot of time, probably 20 hours a week, in my garden here in California working. And in Maine, it's like my winter because my garden is so small. It takes maybe an hour a day. Right. And yet, it brings it up close. We eat all our meals in a screen porch facing the ocean. And um, all of the bumblebees and butterflies and dragonflies are visiting these tiny microcosms. And um, it, it's, it's a wonderful experience. I love the difference of the two experiences. I would imagine. And you offer lodging at your place in Maine, don't you, Sharon? <laughs> well, it's not that we offer lodging at our little cottage on the ocean. We have a building in Damariscotta, Maine. Oh, I don't okay. know if you've ever been there. No. Um, yeah. We're right by Maine Coast Books and the theater. And in Damariscotta, we have a view out the front of the uh, Damariscotta River and out, out the back of the river in a back bay. And we call it Comfort Found. And it's considered to be literary lodging. It has a couple bedrooms and a kitchen and lots of artwork and gazillions of books, the most comfortable beds in the world. And um, it's just a new venture Jeff and I thought would be fun to offer people a place to stay in a quintessential New England uh, village. It is, Damariscott is my favorite village in the world, with restaurants all around, walking distance, one minute from the water, you know, it's it's wonderful. So we are comfort found in Maine. <laughs> I, I spent a lot of time in Kinneybunkport um, oh, sure. growing up as a kid. And um, we would go there every summer. And, um, yeah, I mean, the blueberry pancakes in the morning oh. Oh. in Maine are just, it's just beautiful. <laughs> so Everything tastes better it in does. Maine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you have to walk every day for those blueberry pancakes can settle on your hips. Exactly. <laughs> So I was just flipping through one of um, through your book uh, Trowel and Error, and you uh-huh. quote Virgil. 
I love um, Virgo. Yeah, and the quote reads, And let no idle spot on earth be found, but cultivate the genius of the ground. So what does that mean for you? It means that, watch out, as my husband said, you plant every square inch. What I, I think that means to me is that the, that the earth is magical, it's full of miracles, and that every bit of it, even the most harsh piece of desert, if given water, will grow something. And um, when, I re- when I started reading, Virgil, reading Virgil's poems, it was, I would say, probably the, the biggest eye-opener for somebody who's involved in agriculture or gardening to read his poetry about gardens and agriculture. And I have little slate boards all around my garden where I've, where I've quoted him because I really believe that he got it that this is a miracle, this soil that we have that we take for granted, walk on and treat like dirt, it's full of miracles. And my husband said, don't you leave an inch of the soil unplanted? I don't. I even, um, if I mulch, what I do is I have underplantings in every area. So I'm not wasting any of that ground. (laughs) I want to make sure I cover it all. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) there's enough plants to go around. (laughs) Truly, truly. Oh, we're fond of that too, (laughs) especially when when you're dealing with small, you know, small spaces. Every we we always say that the plants have to pay their rent, and they have, you know, uh, spaces at a premium, so they have to, you know, they have to look good and and be happy where they're at, you know. I love it that you said the plants have to pay their rent. I, you know what? I, <laughs> That's a New York earth, statement, I guess, Sharon. <laughs> I love it's all about that. real estate. I, I just, you know, I think of things like underplanting with different species of thyme, and making sh- or, or maybe trending chamomile or something, so that you're right. They're paying their rent. They're mm-hmm. they're earning their keep there. That's wonderful. Thank you, New Yorkers. <laughs> <laughs> so oh. we um. You know, as you look through your books, it, it's hard to, to tell what your first love is. Is it writing or is it illustrating or is it gardening? <laughs> well, I have to say I'm, I'm a writer. Okay, that's how and you define yourself as a writer. I, I, do, I do feel that, that I have been very, very lucky to earn my living doing something I'm passionate about. And right now, I'm writing a new book for workmen, and it's a bird book, believe it or not, a bird book for five to nine-year-olds and to get them excited about the world that's right outside their windows, even if they do live in a New York apartment. And so I'm very no, excited about that. that's great, yeah. But I'm also writing, I have two uh, middle-grade children's novels that I'm working on, and one is, I'm actually going today, an agent is going to listen to it today, and uh, I'm going to be reading part of it, and I love I love writing literature for children, and I'm not talking about, you know, trash. I'm not talking about something easy to come out. I'm talking about something laced with history and ethnobotany and bird lore so that it's, it's multi-layered. Yeah, that makes me want to read it. <laughs> Good. I'll send it to you. <laughs> Please do. We'd love to. We'd love to have you back and talk more about your new works. Um, oh, thank you. Well, one of the uh, the book that the the latest book, which was Trial and Error, one of the things that I find most interesting, and Alice and I have been gardening for years, and I found so much helpful information in. Um, I was wondering if you could share um, a few of the tips from that book with our audience. I, I especially like the willow water recipe, which is something that I had never heard of. Well, that's something that my grandmother did, and but you know what I started doing, and first I should say, Trial and Error was written in 2003, I believe, and I've had 
I think, two, three more books come out since then. And Toad Cottages and Shooting Star just came out a few months ago. Oh, okay. So that, that's my newest one. And it has an amalgam of everything that's in the other books. Um, and I just wanted to say that when I was growing up, my grandmother kept in her refrigerator a mason jar that had a lid on it. And I would see her soak starts of plants in that. And I didn't really understand why. I didn't have any clue why. So what I started doing when I, when I was looking through my journals, and I did mention that they, they took my journals in which I draw and make notes, and they used that as the basis of the book Trial and Error. And I remembered writing about willow water and, and thinking about, well, I wonder why that works. So I started doing the checking on the... Uh, on the scientific reasons behind a lot of the things that are in trial and error. And I found out about how the willow tips, it's usually the growing young tips and the new green leaves, the pro, that's the protoplasm that has more of the compounds in them that cause things to root. And one of the things that is in willow water is indo, I never can pronounce this, indobutyric acid, salicylic acid, acid and rhizocaline. And these, all these things are stimulants. And indolbutyric acid is called IBA, and that's part of a, the rooting com- compounds we buy now as a powder. You know how you mm-hmm. use wet a tip and rutone. Well, that's yeah. Got IB- yeah, it's got IBA. Yeah, rutone. It's got IBA in it. But I, I've always just used willow water, and um, I keep. I do a great big. I have a great big enamel pot out in the garden, and I fill it with rainwater, and I cut a lot of those new willow clippings. And, and twigs and soak them in that for about a week. And then I bottle up that water. It turns a kind of a murky, browny gold. And I don't keep it longer than a week because it'll get stinky and it starts sort of spoiling. Mm-hmm. And then I bottle up that, uh, the water in, in willow, the willow water and put them in my extra fridge. And I use that for starting things during the year. I do that even for begonias and, you know, pelargoniums and all sorts of things. So it has all the compounds that you want to start things, to get things off to a good start. Now, last year I started doing more research on it, and I found that master gardeners in Rhode Island are using willow water and salicylic acid, aspirin, to, um, they're testing it on different patches of their garden, and they're finding out that the things that are either drenched in uh, salicylic acid, aspirin, uh, or willow water, do much better than the other plants that are started. So it's just an amazing circle of knowledge that starts from the natives who discover this, mm-hmm. who realize that there's this potential for growth in these things that root so easily. It's used as a, an accompaniment to that knowledge. It's passed on to our families, to our ancestors, mm-hmm. and it comes up through the ranks and it ends up being tested out scientifically, and it's true. Well, it's not always true about all of those things that are passed on to us, but it certainly is true about willow water. Oh, great. That, that sounds great. I can't wait to try that. And aspirin, plain old 325 milligram uncoated aspirin dropped in. And, and I've got all this in trial and error, and you've got the, the, you know, exactly how much to use. And that's the salicylic acid again, and it's used to treat sick plants just as a chamomile tea is used mm-hmm. to fight fungus and mildew and things. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing. Um, th- there's a big trend here in New York with compost tea. Um, and, Good. and I know that um, Battery Park City uses a lot of that to fertilize sure. their, their plants. So, yeah, it's a similar I do, idea. And I, 
my poor husband, I was I was getting my compost and soaking, putting it in his socks. Well, he had socks that were pretty bad, anyhow, I thought. <laughs> and then I would just drop them into my various watering. I have about a, a dozen watering cans around right. the garden. <laughs> and he said, I can't, I've got one of everything. And I said, uh. <laughs> but you can use those um, wonderful uh, plasticky or meshy things that onions come in. Yeah, right. Those are a good thing for soaking your, your compost. Right. And, of course, you have to do big chunkers when you're, when you're doing compost tea. And don't leave it in too long because it'll get bad they have all kinds of machines and all sorts of things simple is better yeah <laughs> yeah a lot of, well we work in container gardens a lot because in Good. the city we have to you know put plants to containers on roofs and things like that and liquid oh, yeah. li- you know we can't put it in the ground there is no ground so we have to use liquid fertilizer drenches yeah. you know we, we can't use granular sometimes you Good. can't put compost so we use compost Good. tea or things natural things like fish emulsion and, and stuff Seaweed, like that yeah. which leads oh, me to our talk about um you know as you probably noticed, this radio network is very food-focused. Good. <laughs> um, and to try to get people to eat better and to make better choices um, with their food. Good. Um, and and to plant their own food. And to plant and grow their own food. Um, and realize how much power, you know, their, their pocketbooks have. Um, That's right. So I wanted to have you share with our audience um, how you think... Uh, it best to equip a kitchen with with kids in mind and how to get them excited about cooking and what kind of you know um, implements and things should be in a kitchen if children are going to use it right I keep um, we don't have an island in our kitchen our house was built in 1930 we have a long uh, seven foot long old work table that we use and it's just the right height for children it's quite a bit lower than countertops and uh, I think I sent you a picture of mm-hmm. some of my grandchildren working. And then we also keep a drawer at child height, and it has has their rolling pins, their miniature cake pans, everything that they can, they go right to it, and they know exactly where their tools are. So it's all about making things accessible and having them at their height. Scale. And I do yeah. not, I'm not a proponent of um, putting children up on a, stool to work. It's too dangerous, especially when you're in a kitchen. So that's why I have everything down at child height. And I really think that um, just making it a not a job. I had a friend come who wanted to teach the kids how to do, do a certain kind of cooking, and he made it so difficult for them that their eyes started rolling back in their heads. <laughs> yeah. It has to be something short and sweet. And in toad cottages, I have all of these really simple things and a list of the equipment that you should have for kids, a small rolling pin, small spatula, you know, knives that are butter knives and they don't have a sharp edge but that they can still cut with. And just the point is get it at their height, make it accessible, and then do the simplest recipes you can. And if you're growing lettuce, which everyone should be, and if you're growing carrots and if you're growing radishes, let the kids harvest them, have their own little colander, rinse them out outside, bring them in and prepare them fresh. We do salad bar parties. We do, you know, anytime we can get the kids to harvest fresh, that's the best way. And and you're right, you don't need a lot of space to do it. No, no, no. And, you know, I had a little boy who came to one of my classes, and he, when he, I asked, I pulled a handful of carrot seeds out, and I said, what do you think these are? Or, no, I asked first, where do you think carrots come from? And they said, the truck, the cookie crock market, you know, it had every, uh, everything. And I pulled out a handful of seeds from my gardening apron, and I said, the carrots come from this. I held a carrot in one hand, and I, 
And this little boy, Bodie, yelled, that's a miracle. Aww. And I thought, it is. And that's what we want the kids to know. Let them feel the seeds. There are so many great catalogs out there they can go through and pick what they want or go to a farmer's market. Yeah. You know, let them feel the seeds. Let them plant them. Give them some small plants that are already started mm-hmm. to get rid of the frustration factor. But grow food. And that's all I grew in my new book. I wanted to connect kids to the kitchen and all my food projects are small in containers because you don't want to frustrate kids. And I even have a garden that's growing in a bale of hay. Oh, I love that. I love that. It's a great... It is incredible. You would not believe how easy it is. Schools could do it very easily. And it is so much fun. And then when they're done growing in that bale of straw, they can use it to, you know, top all their beds or their pot. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time today, Sharon, but please, um, let's do stay in touch. And I'd love that. And when you're here in June, um, maybe we could get you back on the show here in the station. I'd love that, and I want to see some of your gardens. I've always craned my neck and tried to see rooftop gardens, and I've never been in one. Oh, okay. We'll give you a well, private it's a tour. Done, it's a done deal. <laughs> you two are wonderful. Thanks so much. Thank, thank you, you, Sharon. Take Okay, thank you. Uh-huh, bye. Well, you've been listening to the Heritage Radio Network and We Dig Plants. Uh, A big thank you to Roberta's Pizza at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and to our sponsor. Our show today was produced and engineered by Jack Inslee. Please join us on our Facebook fan page, Groundworks Inc. We Dig Plants. We'd love your feedback, and we'll be posting a link to Sharon's blog and her website shortly. Thanks for listening. Happy gardening. Happy gardening.